This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, I sit down with Lane Kawaoka. He's an ex civil engineer and he owns a lot of real estate now. He's got ownership in over seven mobile home parks, 21 apartment buildings, and one assisted living facility, totaling 4,500 units in nine US markets. And today we're talking about some counterintuitive wealth rules that the rich follow. We're going to be talking about things like, you know, don't buy a home to live in, don't buy mutual funds, don't use retirement accounts as investment vehicles, and don't pay taxes. So we're not going to give out financial advice. We're not your financial planner. Make sure to take what we say with a grain of salt. But these are some things that Lane used to get to where he's at. He's retired now. He's retired early and he's living off his passive income. He talks about that at his website, simplepassivecashflow.com. You can learn more about that after the show. And he's just going to be delivering some value to you guys. So I hope you enjoy it and stick through to the end. But before all that, here's today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is make sure you vet your buyers well. So if you are wholesaling and you know, you're know you flipping the contract, and we've talked about that in previous episodes, so you can go back and listen to episodes where we talked about wholesaling. I think that was episode number 10 with Lincoln Amstutz. And if you are doing that, make sure you're vetting your cash buyers because the worst thing that could happen is you expect to get paid on a certain day and then your buyer's funds are not there. So you either have to come up with the fund yourself or you have to tell the homeowner, the original seller, hey, we can't close on your house. So that's a really sticky situation that you don't want to be in. So make sure you talk to your title company and other investors to really vet those buyers. Make sure your buyer is truly coming with cash. They're not you know, depending on other lenders because those lenders could always fall through. And make sure that they're okay and comfortable with doing major renovations because I anticipate a lot of the properties that you're wholesaling, certainly the ones I wholesale, need a lot of renovations. And you need a buyer that can stick through to the end on that and has experience working with dilapidated properties. And if you are sticking the property on the MLS, a strategy I like to call wholetailing, where you get it at a deep discount and then you sell it immediately on MLS without doing any repairs, make sure you are vetting your buyers there. Um, I learned this the hard way in the last week, guys. So I had a property that I was wholetailing and I got a, you know, too good to be true offer. I knew it was too good to be true. And within two days, uh, that offer came in. Okay. So we accepted it, started lining up the title work. And then they had in their contract a seven-day inspection contingency so that they could back out. And I knew this you know, was in there in the contract, but I didn't think they'd really back out. Well, sure enough, the inspection came back and they did back out. So we were left holding the bag and we had to put it back on the market. So that just looks bad for the property and everyone else. So make sure you're vetting your cash buyers. And it's a little harder to do on the MLS. And by that, I mean... It's listed on the market and the buyer is represented by an, uh, a real estate agent. But you can still try to you know, scope out the situation with the other agent and say, hey, is this person truly going to close? Um, and make sure they're okay with all the repairs needed. Like I said about the wholesaling bit. So 
it's something we can't always <laughs> prevent against, but that's a lesson I learned in the last week to make sure I'm betting my cash buyers correctly. So with all that being said, I am going to begin our interview. This is Lane Kawaoka. Welcome to the show, Lane. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. You bet. And for all of you who don't know, um, Lane is in Hawaii, so that's why he said aloha. How does it feel to be in Hawaii right now? Uh, it's a little rainy here today, but um, you know, live where you want, invest where the numbers make sense, is what I say. Yeah, that's awesome. Every, anytime somebody mentions like they're in Hawaii, I'm, I just imagine like just on the beach, you know, sipping a drink and like nothing, nothing bad happens to you in yeah. Hawaii. Well, but, uh, it's a little sure bit, it's, it's a little bit case. different when you live here, right? Yeah. I mean, if that were the case, I'd be an alcoholic and um, wouldn't get anything done. But you know, when you live here, it's just like anywhere else. Where, you know, you live it just happen to be nice weather all the time. Yeah, hopefully more uh, nice weather than not nice weather. <laughs> awesome, Lane. Um, we're going to talk about um, counterintuitive wealth rules that the rich follow. So uh, Lane has a unique way of, of talking on this subject, and you have experience in this topic, Lane. So, But before all that, before we get into the meat and potato of the, of the show, let's talk about you, your past, um, and how you got started in real estate. Yeah, so currently um, I run apartment syndications. Currently, I have over 6,000 units today. But um, where I started from was back in 2009 when I bought my first rental property. Um, I kind of grew up in a household where we're taught to be very frugal, go to school, get a good job. I eventually became an engineer. And because uh, you know, I just I, I kind of followed with this linear path, right? All this financial dogma, go buy the house to live in. I did that, um, eventually started to rent it out. And that's where I got this taste of cash flow. And I eventually bought more and more of the, these turnkey rentals out of state for cash flow and then off and moving. Awesome. Yeah, you kind of took the traditional path, becoming an engineer. What was it like to go to school for that long and then and then kind of arrive to the realization that you know you weren't where you needed to be? What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I would say... I I got to my freedom number and I was still working and I had changed jobs a couple of times, you know, in the beginning, you know, I worked for a private company. I guess that's where you learn the most as a professional, but I kind of searched for easier jobs to work at to, so I'd have more free time to do what was really important, which is the real estate investing part of it. So I eventually created a nice lifestyle where the jobs are pretty cruise and, you know, I was able to invest passively, but you know, eventually got to a point where, you know, I started to do bigger deals, started to bring other people's money involved and therefore, you know, needed to kind of turn it into a true profession and, you know, spent all my time doing it. And that was kind of where I finally quit my job back in 2018, I think, and never looked back since. And, but I think the, the hardest thing that a lot of people talk about when they make that jump is, especially if you're a high paid professional, it's like, you know, your identity is kind of wrapped up. You know, I was an engineer. You, know, you introduce yourself, you say you're an engineer. And part of it is the, you know, kind of that, that baggage or that identity. You, know, you went to school for a dozen plus years to be this profession. And you kind of feel like you're just throwing it away. Yeah, certainly. I feel that way too. You know, I'm still in my full-time job as a CPA. And when somebody asks me what you do, it's hard not to say, oh, I'm an accountant. Oh, I'm a CPA. Because I don't really know why it's just so ingrained in this, you know, we spent so much time to acquire this credential. And so we just, 
we want to share that, but it, it's, it's less popular to say, oh, I'm a real estate investor or go into that for some reason. I think it's the way we're just kind of brought up. Would you agree? Yeah, because like, you know, it's like 2021 now, right? If you're an entrepreneur on your LinkedIn profile, we all know you don't have a job. You can't find a job. You know, you're unemployed. Um, and, you know, by having that professional title, you know, in society, it kind of gets you a certain amount of notoriety. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the other day, you know, I was watching a commercial on like senior housing. And, you know, I was imagining if I was like really old, you know, what is the, what do we talk about, right? What we talk about, how do you know Jerry over there? Well, Jerry was the doctor or Barry was the engineer, right? So much of it is predicated on your titles of your occupation. Um, and, you know, when you kind of, when you get to a certain point, you kind of give that up. But, you know, most people get to that stage where they are financially free. They, they don't give a rip anymore because they're FI and, they don't live by normal society kind of values at that point. They're just titles and nonsense. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, if you travel to other countries, they're more defined by their family. So they, you know, they talk about their family name, but in America, it's like we're identified by our occupations and it's just different, you know, different way people identify themselves for sure. Yeah. These, these days I'm kind of like, well, you know, I, I am what I am. I don't care who you are. I mean, it seems kind of funny, but like, it's like, well, what's car trip you drive, right? What's your network? That's all that really matters. I mean, I know that sounds very shallow, but, you know, as a real estate investor, I mean, you need to kind of stop. You're, you're getting off the beaten path you need to stop caring what other people think about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we could certainly uh, dedicate the whole show to that, for certainly. But today, specifically, again, the counterintuitive wealth rules that the rich follow. Before we even dive into what these rules are, why did you kind of um, outline this? Why did you basically discover this so early in life? Like, how did you stumble upon these wealth rules? Yeah, so I, you know, went out, bought a rental property, went and got, um, around 2015, I had 11 of these rentals. And at this point, I just was doing it all by myself. Um, At that, around 2015, it was when I finally got out of my shell and started to interact and network with other pure passive, high net worth investors. And for me, it was a game changer because now I started to really get a glimpse of what the high net worth folks do. And what I realized is a lot of what they do is very counterintuitive to what we're all taught, right? By our parents, coworkers, friends. And the crazy thing is like a lot of these things were, they're very attainable. It's not, it's not something that anybody can't do, but there's certain financial dogma out there that totally tells us it's the wrong thing. You know, for example, not going into all this debt, you know, getting whole life insurance or, you know, buying a house to live in, right? I mean, we can kind of talk more detail about these things. Um, but, you know, like another example is like the wealthy don't do these stinking retirement accounts. That's for suckers. I mean, it's like when you first hear that, you're like, that's messed up, Lane. You know, that's a, I can't take money out of my retirement. That's an absolute sin, right? My friends and family will laugh at me. But I'm just saying, hey, man, like that's what the wealthy do. And I'm not, I mean, I just figure out what the wealthy do and pick up the best practices and make sure that it's logical from a numbers perspective. And I just go with it. Yeah, you, you figure out what they do and then you just copy it. It's not like you're reinventing the wheel. You're just copying, pasting what works. So let's dive into that uh, a wealth rule that the rich follow that are counterintuitive to our culture. Um, you mentioned in one of your, um, on your website, don't buy a home to live in. Okay. Can you unpack that? Because that's certainly counterintuitive. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, let's use the, the archetype of like the young professional. Um, I mean, this is who it really hurts. Um, a house to me is sort of like, a, it, it's a kind of a financial drag on your finances. You put this big lump sum down payment into a house and it doesn't really grow for you. Conventional financial wisdom will say, well, you're putting money into this house and it's growing equity. Well, yeah, you could put it into five houses, right? And the crazy thing is that instead of you paying money for the mortgage and putting your heart, sweat, and tears and sweat equity into there, you have five families paying the stuff for you, putting their sweat equity into your wealth building. And that's the big difference. Um, and, and this, it comes down to paradigm shifts, right? Most people listening, most people in the world are really bad with their finances and can't seem to save money. Sometimes it has to do with their saving skills, just basic personal finances and budgets. Other times it's they just quite frankly don't make enough money. And, you know, I'm kind of speaking more towards the higher paid professionals out there. Right? You guys make a good salary. Um, you guys are living in a different paradigm than most of America. And most of America, if you give them $10, they're going to go spend 11 right? They are irresponsible from a financial perspective. And not to say, not to cast any judgment or anything like that, but for those people, certain sets of rules apply. And this is where the Susie Ormans and the Dave Ramseys, they, I, I, I don't like their advice, but their advice is good for this subset of people that aren't, haven't really got a grasp on their basic finances. So for those types of people, a house is sort of a forced savings account, right? You put money into there and it gets their grubby hands off of it from spending it. And that's the that's the the benefit to that. But if you're like, you know, a lot of my clients, they are the diligent savers, they're the max out their 401k guys, they save at least thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. Now these are the different people on the other side of this paradigm that should go on the offense and invest their money in assets as opposed to just sink it down into their house. Yeah, you mentioned a valuable term there. Offense, you know, it, it's a difference between defense and offense. Uh, there's two ways to play money, right? You can either go on the defense and try to save and cut your life back, which works for a lot of people who are, you know, high thrill or they just want, they don't have a lot of discipline. But if you want to truly get wealthy, you have to play more offensive, which is focusing more on income than just cutting back. So tying it back to don't buy your home, do you believe that just because it's um, it's a way for you just to tie up all this money without producing income. Like, what's the exact reasoning why maybe a twenty-two something that twenty-something that just got a high-paying job? Why should they not go buy their own home? I mean, it just comes down to numbers, right? I'm like, well, all right, show me how the numbers grow by you putting sinking your money into your house, right? And it'll go up. So just typically, real estate goes up and appreciates, right? And I think that's why it's such a forgiving asset class. But, you know, you take that same money and you go plunk it down in real estate um, properties or syndications and you show me what, what in the five, 10 year picture, how that money grows. I mean, the numbers don't lie here. I mean, that's all it is. Some people will say, well, renting is like throwing money down the tube. That's the biggest bunch of baloney I ever heard. Yes, myopically it is. But what you, if you're taking that money and you're making way more money on the side in rentals or syndications, you need to look at the bigger picture. I mean, I, I try and model the way, I mean, I, I rent, my net worth is pretty decent. Um, and so, I mean, I have a sort of a feeling where I don't think people should buy their primary residence 
a lesser net worth is two times at least greater than their net worth. Okay, so the home's val- their net worth needs to be two times the home's value is kind of what you're saying? Right. So if they're buying a $700,000 house, their net worth better be, you know, 1.4 or to me, I mean, it should be three times or more, but right. I mean, at that point, then you can start, you know, like a lot of this wealth building in the beginning is the most critical stage when your network is under a quarter million or under a million dollars, you can't be screwing around and doing these like, you know, bad financial things like buying a house. Yep. Right. But once you get to a certain tipping point, and it's different for everybody, once you hit that sort of almost escape velocity, now you can take your foot off the pedal and start drinking some caviar and champagne and buy a house mm-hmm. to live in mm-hmm. right? or buy a nice car. I mean, that's that's the beautiful thing. Go ahead and buy a nice car if you have the cash flow to support it and you're already to that past that critical point. Yeah, it's all about rate of return. And rate of return is very important, especially early in your career, because you don't have a lot of capital to work with. So you need a higher rate of return to make the same amount of money than, say, a very wealthy person would. So what you're saying is, instead of plopping down thirty, fifty, dollars $100,000 for a down payment, deploy that in other cash flowing assets. And let's say you're making $2,000 a month from that would-be down payment, but then you're paying seven hundred dollars in rent while you're net $1,300. Is that kind of what you're saying? Pretty much. That's that's the logic, right? Yeah. But then, you know, we, we, we run into, I mean, I coach and counsel a lot of, you know, folks. And eventually what it comes down to is the people that are listening to the podcast understand what we're talking about, right? They get it. Right. But they can't, they cannot um, convey and communicate this to their spouse, mm-hmm. the anchor. And they cannot effectively lead and manage and, you know, take their family to where they want to be if, if that's their goals. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's just the kind of the stoic within me, but you know, the obstacle is the way you've got to kind of go through this and you can't just, you know, buy things that you want on a whim, like a house. I mean, you have to do what is necessary to get to where you're at. And if you're under a million dollars net worth, you're broke. Right. And that's kind of a derogatory term, but like you got to do stuff that you probably don't want to do to get to a certain point to be financially free. If that's what you truly want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to think counterintuitively, counterintuitively, like we're talking about on the show here. So the second pillar that you mention in one of your online resources is you don't buy mutual funds or other Wall Street products. So you're singling out an entire type of investing here. Like we're talking stocks, ETFs, I mean, bonds. And so why do you hold that position? Because that's, that's very counterintuitive. Yeah. I mean, when I started investing, I was making maybe 20, 30 or 20 to 30% returns on my money, just with a simple rental property. Um, people don't believe me. They can go to simple slash returns, check out the video on the whole math. Right. But Kind of just go with me on podcast land here. I mean, I, here I am in like my early 20s and I'm like, why am I going to put my money in this like supposedly like stock market 401k mutual fund stuff when I'm only making 8 to 10% and it goes up and down like a freaking roller coaster, mm-hmm. right? And, and for me, it was like no clearer picture than that. Why the heck would I want to do that? If I just do take a little due diligence and yeah, I'm sure I'm getting off the beaten path, but it's not that hard. It's simple passive at some point and I can make much higher returns by doing this on my own. Why would I not want to do that? Um, and, and then I started to uncover, you know, the, the whole system is engineered to keep us investing in that garbage. Before 401ks weren't a lot around, 
um, you know, earlier than the eight, 1980s. It was sort of an engineered thing. Yes, it was to get people to actually save their money, right? The people on that side of the paradigm. But it was a way for the, all these mutual fund companies, like the Fidelity, your Vanguards, your Charles Schwab's, to get at the, all this money is sitting on the sidelines from the average Joe. Because the average Joe wasn't able to get involved into the stock market. But now all these companies are able to get at these people's money and they take their monies at huge hidden fees and carried interests. And what the average person doesn't realize is just getting robbed in their sleep at this stuff. And nothing is no clearer when I'm only making 8 to 10% of that stuff and I'm making such a bigger return when I'm doing it on my own, right? It's like, well, where did my money go? Well, I went to those big buildings. I went to these high salaries for all these, you know, Ivy League grads who work in these ivory towers. I mean, if, if you want that stuff and you're okay with those returns, cool. But I realize, you know, that the, the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz reference, that it's this whole system is engineered to keep us in that stuff. Because if everybody said what I'm kind of preaching, go buy a handful of rentals and eventually get into involved in syndications, you know, most people are able to get financially free in less than 10 years if they make a halfway decent salary, right? I mean, at that point, like who would choose to go to work? And who would build our bridges? Who would play doctor for us? Who would, you know, push the government paper around? Nobody would, right? I mean, maybe some would, but I wouldn't. Yeah, it's it's kind of sickening when you think about it that way, um, you know, that there are things in place to get people to do things for long decades, and then you eventually retire um, underwhelmed <laughs> at what you've built your life towards. Yeah. So, what what frustrates me is like there's so much like you know here's some of the dogma that kind of prevents us all to do this right and it's built in ingrained in society, um, uh, let alone all the marketing right which you pay for as the investor it comes out in hidden fees part of the operating budget of the mutual fund or the broker, um, but like you know people say well you don't want to take money out of your retirement right that's a sin you can't do that you're not you can't do that, mm-hmm. but like you know when I did it. To me, it made sense. I'm going to take my money out, but I'm not going to be a bonehead and go buy a car or jet skis with it. I'm going to keep putting it towards long-term assets that I don't intend to use for a while. Right? I'm not taking the money out. Um, so you can call it retirement money or not. It's still my, my, my asset column. And then they call like, when you take money out, they call it like a penalty, 10% penalty. But to me, I was like, well, if I can recoup that 10% penalty in six months and after that it's all gravy, why the heck wouldn't I want to do this? Yeah. And so you were basically taking money out of your 401k and investing into real estate. Um, when you discovered this, did you withdraw all your money from your 401k? I actually didn't do this for quite a while. Like, you know, I, I was just, I was worse off than probably some of the listeners. I was always taught you never touch your retirement funds, which is complete baloney. Um, so it took me, I mean, I had bought several renters, rentals up until that point until I finally pulled the plug on the retirement funds. Um, okay. I, I wish I would have done it a lot sooner. But, you know, I mean, I, I was a good boy, right? I was like, you don't do that type of stuff, right? You don't pull yeah. your retirement funds and, and take a 10% penalty, you know, like, that's just stuff you're not, you're not like conditioned to do. Um and yeah, I'm the person that preaches, like, do you run your numbers, right? I'm the very one that I saw the numbers, but I didn't do it for such a long time. Um, but, you know, so I get it. I know how hard it is for people to kind of get off the beaten path and think alternatively. But, you know, think for yourself, do the numbers yourself. 
that numbers yeah. don't lie. And on the positive side, if you're a person who has worked for 10, 20, 30 years by now, and you have a sizable 401k balance, go ahead and try to tap into that through self-directed IRA and certain options that, you know, I'm not qualified to speak on, but there are ways to tap into those funds and divert it into real estate or syndications um, like you're involved in to get that higher return. So if you're earning eight to 10, maybe you can get 20 to 30. So yeah. Yeah, no, let, let, let's talk about that a little bit, sure. right? Like, I think one thing is like getting out of the retail types of options. So mm-hmm. the analogy I like to use is like, you know, when you're investing in these brokerages, it's kind of like the cafeteria in high school, or at least at my high school, right? You have, you're stuck with the, the school lunch. You, you've got only the options that they have. And typically it's crappy food and it was, re- it was really expensive. But what do you do when you get your off-campus pass, right? Which is synonymous with, investing outside of these brokerages and investing in possibly real estate on your own. You know, you're out of there. You got your car, you're going out to Burger King and McDonald's, KFC, right? It's cheaper food. It's tastes better. I mean, the one thing about this analogy where it kind of breaks down is like, it's not healthy. Right. But you know, I think people get the analogy, right? Like when you get out of your money, out of that retirement fund stuff, out of the mutual fund stuff, now you can go invest in actually good investments where people aren't robbing you blind with all the fees and stuff like that. So you're going from retail investments to non-retail, right? It's kind of like people that buy stuff at Saks Fist. It was like, I got like a shirt there for like 34 bucks because I had the, had a gift certificate, but I can get that same shirt elsewhere on Amazon for like five bucks. It's crazy why anybody shops there, but that's how most people invest. And that's how a lot of people shop, right? But now we're talking about, all right, so you can invest the money through a self-directed retirement system. So yeah, you could still keep it in the, the qualified retirement plan, retirement money sector, but invest in things outside the garbage cafeteria of investments, such as real estate. But one thing I kind of help clients is like, you know, every situation is different. So a retirement plan typically is not the way to go because when you start investing in, you know, larger deals and get the tax benefits of passive activity losses, you can't use the passive activity losses to offset your passive income or your passive or your ordinary income, which is a big strategy for the high net worth, high income earners. So when you're investing in this retirement plan construct, so for a lot of those guys, the, the best plan is to get it out of there and invest cash. So you can take advantage of the tax benefits of those. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and kind of back to your analogy, I just want to add, you know, where the marketing dollars are, that's where most people will be. Okay. So like the Fidelity, the Vanguards, they have the biggest marketing budgets. And so that's where most people invest. If you take, for example, in the grocery store, that the biggest food companies have the largest marketing budgets. So that's where most people will shop. It doesn't mean it's the best food for you or it's the best investment product for you. It's just where those companies have invested. So once you get out of that realm and you can kind of see the horizon, the all your options as they are, then you start to realize like what a lie you've been sold on, you know, this whole time. So right. it's pretty and, and they, all this like marketing kind of makes it where it's like really this whole investing thing is really complicated, right? To scare the crap out of you. And I tell people, well, investing is not that hard, especially when it's real estate, right? Where you're investing in a commodity such as a house and people rent it. Simple, simple passive cash flow. But like these brokerages and the, all the investing dogma, they try, they try and make this stuff really complicated. And investing in stocks is kind of complicated, in my opinion, which is why I don't do it. 
Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of people, they get intimidated, right? They're like, Oh, I don't understand math or I understand the stock stuff. So I'm just going to give it to the guy in the suit that seems to know what the heck he's doing. Right. And that's exactly what they want. So I think uh, my, my message is like, Hey guys, this ain't that complicated, right? Don't get like bamboozled into thinking you need to go with these seemingly smart people, right? Like your financial planner, your financial planner just gets paid off commission, right? I haven't found one financial planner that actually has made their wealth outside of selling people's on being a salesman. Um, actually I have, and they invest in real estate, you know, hit a, a back doorway. Yeah. I heard once the, the average, you know, salary for a financial planner is 70 or 80,000, but yet we're putting all, all of our eggs in one basket to, for them to teach us how to get rich. And it just doesn't make sense. So definitely you have to follow who you, you have to watch who you are following, who you're getting a, your advice from. And if you're getting advice from somebody who's making money off you ver, via commissions, that's probably a bad sign. And that's what we see a lot in the Wall Street, uh, on in those Wall Street products. So that's why we kind of caution you towards that. 100%. You only take financial advice from people who are not financially free. Unfortunately, this is not your parents. This is not your coworkers, especially the coworker that's been there for 30 years plus. Right. You don't want to take it financial advice from that sucker who's been stuck there. Right. And, and sometimes this can carry forward to CPAs, lawyers. Right. Like, I mean, probably should have said the whole disclaimer or we're not CPAs, we're not lawyers. But look, I've left my day job doing this stuff yeah. and figured this stuff out. A lot of CPAs and a lot of lawyers, they they they're still stuck in the day job. They're still working, trading time for their money. Right. There's very few, you know, financial professionals that have actually done this. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, CPAs, they know the tax rules, but then they keep earning money the wrong way. And that is heavily taxed. Uh, the lawyers know the legal rules, but then they don't, you know, take advantage of them or implement them. So it's kind of like, you know, you have to really be humble and maybe not come from that type of background to achieve wealth. Because if you, if you know the tax rules up and down, or you know the law up and down, sometimes you just take it for granted and you don't use it to get wealthy. So um, definitely agree with that. Um, let's On this final point of this, the final counterintuitive way that the rich get wealthy, um, I want to talk about taxes. So you're saying that generally speaking, the rich, um, they don't pay taxes. I assume they may pay some taxes, but they don't pay a as high of a percentage in taxes as, for example, an employee or a self-employed person. Why is that? And how do they do that? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're investing in real estate as their primary weapon to lower their taxes. So real estate is cool because it's the one asset class out there that you can deduct the price of the improvement over, you know, if you have a rental property 27 years. So you can take that paper loss or phantom loss off of your passive income, which is cool. Where you kind of, you know, put this on steroids is in, you know, larger deals that can do a cost segregation, uh, which kind of itemizes all the pieces of the building. At the end of it, you can deduct a third of the building value in the first year, right? Which now gives investors a huge amount of passive losses to now play different levers on their taxes. The passive losses can be used to offset passive income. Often, you know, that more than like offsets the income for that year, but also can create a surplus of losses, which is a good thing. Now, we kind of work with clients to, you know, like a lot of people who might implement real estate professional status, 
which has a lot of things, you know, moving parts with it. We're not going to kind of get into it, but now you can possibly unlock the passive losses to lower your ordinary income. And, you know, that's just one strategy, right? And there's different types of deals you can go in, you know, basically you're, you're going and you're following the incentives that the IRS have put into the tax code. The government wants us to invest our money and put our money in certain places, right? It's our job and with the help of our professionals to figure what those out are, are and also the best practices from our community or mastermind. So, you know, like this is what the wealthy do, right? They figure out what these things that the, that the, that the IRS wants us to invest in, put our money there and we can drive our adjusted gross income down or get different tax credits. I mean, if people want to go look at my taxes, they can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax and, you know, to see how much I've been paying the last several years, every year. Um, some people will think that's messed up, right? I mean, to me, I mean, I'm just doing what the government wants me to do. And you know what? Like, if, and I'm the one putting my money into a lot of these apartment deals for workforce housing. This is what the government wants, right? We have no government housing for this type of stuff. They want investors such as myself to put money into this stuff. And then therefore they get, I get the great tax benefits from it. Whereas if you're somebody who just puts your money into stocks, mutual funds, you're going to have to pay taxes on that because you're not investing with how the government wants you to do it. Right? Everybody needs to pull their weight here. If you don't, you're not putting your money in the right stuff that they want you to do, then you got to pay taxes, bro. Right. And unfortunately, it's the people, the high income earners that are getting killed by this stuff. It's not the wealthy. It's not the low, the lower end. It's that shrinking middle class that are getting killed with this stuff because they're not following the breadcrumbs. Yeah, it's surprising that more people don't talk about taxes. And, you know, they they just they get their tax return and they pay what it says on it. And they don't really think about how to lower that because it's just become so big a part of our life. And, you know, if you think about a hundred years ago, there wasn't even an income tax a little over a hundred years ago. So how we've allowed the government to step in and encroach so much, but for wise investors like you who know how to kind of not cheat the system, but uh, legally take advantage of it, then um, you're just going to be in the top, you know, five, three, five percent of people that pay little to no tax uh, relative to their income. So it's very powerful. If you can, if you can save 40%, which is, you know, some people pay 40% taxes. If you can save that, then that's just more you can circulate back into investments. So you just earn that it all compounds. Yeah. And, and this is like kind of going out to the higher income earners and the higher net worth people like had a case where um, a doctor wanted to like, you know, they make pretty high salaries, like $600,000 AGI. And by doing a few maneuvers, real estate professional status, coming into some deals with larger bonus losses, we kind of able to lower them from 600 grand down to 400 grand. I'm just saying using these round numbers, right? And that effectively saved them 100 grand. Yet they're wasting their time trying to learn some kind of like short-term rental strategy where they, at best they could make $5,000, $10,000 a year, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is, I think, where people like, they get confused, right? Because they see all these investing strategies, right? But they don't really understand the high level, what's really going to move the needle. What's the 80, 20 here, right? Mm -hmm. So for higher income earners, it's more of a tax game, right? If exactly how you said, like if we could just move them from 600 grand to 400 grand, we just sheltered, we just saved maybe a hundred thousand dollars of taxes right there. 
who cares if they would have had 10 rental properties or 20 rental properties, in fact, right? It, like it's it's more kind of what moves the needle in terms of dollars and, and what you get at the end of the year. And this is how the game transitions from a lower net worth investor to a higher net worth investor and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you focus a lot towards uh, you working highly paid professionals. Um, there's certain things that people need to focus on in different parts of their career. For example, if you make 50000 a year, try to get that up. Obviously, if you're making 600000 a year, you need to you need to focus on getting that up, but also focus on getting your tax down. So there's different goals that you need to take stock of as an individual. But I think the, the highest uh, priority, you would probably agree this, is economic independence is getting um, your rate of return really high and getting your net worth to that million plus mark to where you can really start to make massive moves. Right, right. Like things really start to move and these strategies really start to make sense once your net worth goes over half a million. I mean, if you're, if you're under there, you know, do what I did. I mean, when I graduated college, I didn't have very much money and I had to just like, you know, buy rental properties. So from 2009 to 2015, I was just picking up these trenchy rentals myself. Yeah. So again, you know, we're kind of talking about different advice for different rungs, right? So to me, like the, the split is anywhere from under half a million dollars to over half a million dollars net worth. If you're over a half a million dollars net worth, like you said, you know, it's, it's a lot more of it is taxes. Of course, you still have to invest right in the right assets. But when you're below that, you know, that's, this is where I, I was between 2009 to 2015. Um, I had a good paying job, but I didn't have any net worth at the time. So what did I do? I just picked up rentals diligently and saved my money. Um, I was able to accelerate through this pretty quickly because I was able to save anywhere from like 50 to $80,000 from my day job. Um, I was kind of an extreme saver, but you know, this is where I just kind of picked up assets and one turnkey rental after the next, after the next, after the next. And I think a lot of people don't realize like wealth building isn't a get rich quick thing. Um, you know, from 2009 to 2015, that was a long freaking time. And, you know, people expect to kind of just go to the big stuff and skip over that. But, you know, the crazy thing about this, like real estate investing and wealth building is it kind of goes exponentially. But yeah, you got to kind of put in put in the effort in the beginning, and a lot of it is just building your network up slowly, and then at some point it takes off. Yeah, it's that compound effect. Certainly, uh, for example, you know, you read books like The Slide Edge or The Compound Effect, and they talk about how you know get up a little bit earlier one day, or go to the gym one day, or, or read ten pages of a nonfiction book. You're not going to see the impact of that in the first day, month, even year. But you are going to see that impact in five, seven to 10 years like you saw in your financial life. Right, right. I mean, in the beginning, this is all new to you, right? You kind of don't, you definitely don't trust it. So you go buy a rental property. But after that, you know, you've got to kind of get other, find where all your other lazy equity is. And that could be in your primary residence. So take a HELOC, get a cash out refinance, deploy the funds into more assets, dead money in your retirement funds, you know, put that to good work. Or just you're just sitting on cash, um, you know. Once you've got proof of concept, to me, that's where you got to kind of invest more heavily and get more involved. Um, you know, because classic example is like a guy invests one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and he's like, "Why am I not to financial freedom?" Well, dude, you need to invest more, right? <laughs> like this is not magic, right? It's just a certain rate of return times how much money you invested. You know, the rate of return doesn't go up and down very much unless you want to take a lot of risk. 
which I don't recommend. Therefore, you just have to invest more. And if you don't have the money, then you have to save more and you're just going to take more time. But at some point, you got to start kind of like in your mind, I'd be like pulling the goalie, right? Or taking money out of the 401k, that type yeah, of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There's hope for those people who have bought into the traditional beliefs of buy your home, um, invest in Wall Street products, because you can always get those out through a self-directed IRA, simply cashing out your retirement account, doing a HELOC on the personal residence. So there's the world's financial world's pretty forgiving in that you can tap into these lazy equity items that you mentioned. That's a great term for it. Lazy equity and turn it into high producing equity for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like the, there's certain things that are reversible, right. That I would recommend for new, new people that are uh, faint of heart. The HELOC, like you said, or taking loans for your 401k or taking withdrawals from your Roth IRA, right? Your contributions, you can take out tax-free because you've already paid your taxes. Mm-hmm. And you can take that out penalty-free. So do that first. But once you've got proof of concept, now you need to start to look at the more irreversible things. Like maybe you have a rental property. Maybe you have a primary residence that you should unload and sell. Or maybe you just you want to keep living there, so you do a cash-out refinance. Cash out refinances you pay fees for, right? But it, it probably will make sense to strip out the equity and now invest it elsewhere. Um, other irreversible things would be taking money out of your 401k, your retirement funds. You can't really put it back. I mean, you can, but only at a certain pace. And I don't know why you do want to even put any more money once you're taking it out. To me, it makes no sense. Um, but, you know, they, that those are kind of the two wrong. So, you know, if, you're, if this is all new to you, focus on the irreversible stuff. And then once you've got proof of concept, now you got to kind of go, go all in on this stuff. Yeah. And that's a great way to wrap it up here. But first, before we uh, let you go, Lane, uh, I want to introduce the last portion of our show, which is the triple threat. And it's the same three questions I ask each guest. So the first one is, what has been the app or resource that has been the biggest game changer for your business? Ooh, I, I mean, I like Google Docs and... I don't know, Gmail. I mean, it's just nothing, nothing special I use, I guess. Yeah. Those are great tools for sure. I use them every day. Um, the second question is, um, what has been the biggest lesson for you in the last year? And why do you think that happened? Ooh. I guess like going through the pandemic, I mean, we kind of showed how multifamily apartments survive. of this stuff is a basic necessity. Um, and it kind of, I did it. I was a little worried in April, May, 2020, how all this stuff would happen. I've never been through a pandemic before. Um, and I was kind of worried how collections would go, but, you know, collections came pretty well and, you know, occupancy did drop maybe a few percent points, but, you know, at the end of the day, we still cash flow if we keep, you know, more than 50, 60% of the people of heads and beds. So we were cool. And, now I'm probably even more um, confident in the strategy of going after workforce housing because, you know, at the end of the day, people need a place to live. Population is going up. Immigration is up. And, you know, it's, it's the shrinking middle class that are falling back to the lower middle class into these more value-based uh, housing options. It's what's more demand for. And, you know, sure, there's more like cool ways to make money in like hotels or, you know, hospitality type of stuff, but I think we're all reminded why that stuff is more discretionary spending and it gets killed in situations like this. Yeah. 
Yeah, so absolutely. You uh, went through COVID, but you just have to trust in your assets, trust in your your underwriting, and carry through. That will carry you through the storm, for sure. Um, question number three is: Our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial, lifestyle, or otherwise. So, what does freedom mean to you? Uh, freedom is to do what you want, where you want, with whom you want. Um, I think something I've learned is. There's kind of two people going through life, and most people are the are the people who are trading their time for money. They're going to a job every day, and everything is kind of you know when they go home, they're kind of resting, recovering, going back to work, trading their time once again. Um, until you've you've reached that point of real retirement, right? People get to retirement, but they don't have enough money at that point. They're just kind of eating off their 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 pile of cash. People who've kind of achieved that escape velocity, the critical mass, to have enough money that regenerates and grows, whether they do anything or not, those people have truly got into that zero G scenario. And for people finally lucky enough to get to that point before the age of normal retirement age, you know, those people are get to a point in life that not many people get, where they get the options to, to kind of design their lifestyle and. and figure out what impact they want to make in the world if that's what they so choose um but yeah i mean until you to me your life really doesn't start until you can like not have to go to a day job every day yeah yeah i mean that's that's definitely true for me um you know your life doesn't really begin until you have ultimate choice over what you do with your time i don't know if a lot of people would agree with that. Maybe you like your job or otherwise, but uh, I think it's definitely something that we should all strive for and uh, should be in the back of our mind at all times to, because that's how we're going to achieve our higher purpose. Our higher, higher calling is when we have choices and we can right. over time for sure. Right. I mean, nowadays I, I understand why old people are kind of grumpy, right? They don't have to put up with all this type of nonsense and sorry, my kid is crying. I have to deal with that, but you know, like people who are financially free, they can say no. And they do say no a lot to things that, you know, they don't want to do. And that, that doesn't really meet their calling and not align with their values. Um, and, and great things happen when you can say no most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to end it. Um, this has been a great episode on, you know, the counterintuitive ways that the rich get that way. So I, I have appreciated your time and your expertise lane and i hope the listeners got a lot out of this episode where can people um learn more about you if they are interested i know they that you mentioned the website simple simple passive cashflow.com i believe yeah so um they can check out my podcast simple passive cashflow um, passive real estate investing and in the beginning i would talk a lot about like rental real estate um but as it became more of a credit investor the topics have kind of changed to syndications, taxes, that type of stuff, infinite banking, or they can check out my website, simplepassivecashflow.com. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lane. See ya. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.